This is Writers Talk History, a partnership between Origins, an online magazine covering current events and historical perspective from the Ohio State History Department, and the Center for the Study and Teaching of Writing, also at Ohio State University. All Origins articles and podcasts can be accessed for free online at origins.osu.edu. Our guest today is Dr. Nick Brayfogel, Associate Professor of History at The Ohio State University, who specializes in European and environmental history. He's the author of Heretics and Colonizers, Forging Russia's Empire in the South Caucasus, and is co-editor of Peopling the Russian Periphery, Borderland Colonization in Eurasian History. He is currently working on a book tentatively titled by Call, The Great Lake and Its People. Today we're speaking to him about his recent article for Origins, Russia and the Race for the Arctic, which is co-authored with Jeffrey Dunifon. Thanks for being on the show, Nick, and welcome. Thank you so much, Patrick. It's a pleasure to be here. Tell us a little bit about what you wrote for Origins. Sure, I'd be happy to. The article in many ways stems from the fact that over, really over the last 10 years, We've seen a lot of activity on the part of the Russian government, Russian scientific expeditions, and this sort of thing uh, in the Arctic Ocean. And most kind of notoriously, infamously, uh, in 2007, uh, the Russians went down in one of their mere submersibles and uh, planted a uh, titanium Russian flag at, uh, at the bottom of the Arctic Ocean right at the North Pole. And it set off a whole furor around the globe that the Russians were trying to claim the Arctic uh, for themselves. And so I started to ask myself, well, so what's going on here? Why all of this interest and why the furor around the world? I mean, the, the Canadians in particular, their heads exploded when uh, when the Russians planted this flag. So the article tries to kind of explore some of the reasons that the Russians are so interested in what's going on uh, up in the Arctic. Perhaps most importantly, the Arctic is changing dramatically. The impact of climate change uh, on the Arctic areas is perhaps a great deal more even than we're seeing anywhere else. And this summer alone, we uh, we saw the sort of maximal disappearance of ice in the Arctic that we've seen in historic record, uh, and by a great deal. I mean, way, way lower than the, uh, than the average baseline that they use, so that in summertime, much more water was opened up uh, than we've seen before. And I think that with the ice disappearing, suddenly the Arctic is becoming a place that people are really starting to think about. The Russians are one of, uh, of five countries that have both legal kind of geographic interest in uh, in this part of the world. And what are all those five countries? There's something called the UN Law of the Sea, uh, sometimes called LOST, it's acronym, Law of the Sea Treaty, which I think is a great little, you know, we're lost and lost. And uh, and so the UN, uh, this UN Law of the Sea, passed 1982, basically gives gives rights to various countries to uh, to the waters and whatever resources or, or fish or whatever else are, are in the waters uh, off of their shores. And there are five countries in the world that have water rights to uh, to the Arctic Ocean. Denmark, Norway, Russia, Canada, uh, and the United States. And I'm wondering if this was put in place in response to kind of previous conflict in the region? You know, in terms of the Law of the Sea Treaty, uh, this is something that's not Arctic-specific at all. This was uh, an effort on the part of, uh, of countries across the planet that you know the, the first efforts were several centuries ago to try to figure out some kind of uh, set of laws and and regulations that would govern you know who controlled what out on the open oceans other than simply you know who could blow up whom but these really started to uh, to come together you know after the second world war with the, the development of the United Nations uh, and then an effort within the United Nations to try to come to some kinds of agreements uh, among different nations over who would control what so every country now that has uh, some kind of ocean uh, or sea coastline now is 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 for the most part governed by these uh, these rules and regulations. One of the things that's important is that the United States has not signed this uh, this UN treaty. It's one of the things that makes the U.S. quite different.
different. Part of the terms of the law of the sea argue that whatever ocean uh, is not does not fall within those exclusive economic zones or territorial waters becomes, according to the law of the sea, the boundary of the territory of everybody on the planet. And whatever riches or resources are found, there should be shared around, among all the people of the planet. Uh, and the Reagan administration felt that this smacked a little bit too much of communism uh, going on. So the U.S. has continued not to sign this treaty. In fact, now Russia, Denmark, and Canada are all to a certain degree claiming that those ridges that run under the water in the uh, in the Arctic Ocean, in fact, all are attached to their continental shelves. So they should be able to claim uh, even more of the ocean territory than uh, than before. So in your article, Russia and the Race for the Arctic, you quote a journalist who says that the Arctic Ocean is, quote, the last piece of non-jurisdictional real estate on the planet. But it sounds like Russia's really challenging that idea here to try to claim parts of the Arctic. Well, I think, you know, what we're seeing right now is the effort on the part of, of these five countries, but the effort on the part of all of these countries to stake a claim. Russia, in some ways, has been perhaps the most forward. They've been right out in front of this. They have realized some of the benefits of control of the Arctic uh, in a way that some of the others have been a little bit slower to come to terms with. But still, every country now is trying to take a stake a claim to this. And partly what's happened is, you know, for generations, the Arctic Ocean was a place that was covered in ice. And what, what were you going to do with it, right? You couldn't, I mean, maybe you could go out and, and do a little fishing. And there were some lovely polar bears to go see and all that good stuff. But for human use, you know, you, you couldn't live on it. You couldn't really take anything away. And so no one particularly cared exactly who owned what or how. What's happening as a result of, uh, of climate change and the fact that the ice now is, um, particularly in summertime, in, in, in winter, the ocean still freezes right over. But in summertime now... Now, we have more and more water exposed uh, and for longer periods of time. And there are two big economic outcomes of that. Uh, one is, is that it, uh, it appears that under the ice, there are extraordinary uh, amounts of oil and natural gas. The other thing that's happened in terms of e- economically is that as these waters open up, suddenly there are new transit routes that are available to move goods uh, across the planet. And so there are efforts also to be able to claim this uh, to these waterways. And so all of these countries are now trying to position themselves uh, in order to to be able to claim as much of, uh, of this ocean as they possibly can. So th- there really is, it strikes me, uh, you know, as a result of this kind of climate change, there's, a, there's this new race for the Arctic. On the one hand, the first thing people think of when you say climate change or global warming, things like stranded polar bears or, you know, mm-hmm. coastal flooding come up, those sorts of things, right? But do you think international relations been overlooked? You know, it's for me one of, one of the, the clearest signs that, in fact, climate change is something we should take seriously uh, is the fact that every military across the planet is taking it seriously and is, is is transforming how they design their militaries, how they do their training, uh, how they think about what the future is going to look like to be prepared for this. And so, you know, the, the militaries and the insurance companies across the planet are all taking this very seriously. And so they're doing it because it is, you know, it's, it's real and it's going to have a huge impact. And I think that in terms of the Arctic, just on its own, whoever gets access, there is this sort of sense that, you know, this is a game changer in terms of the amount of fossil fuels that would be available on this planet. Uh, and it's, of course, you know, it's an irony that's lost on no one that uh, uh, that one of the great, uh, say, the kind of riches coming out of, uh, of, of this change to the Arctic uh, will be fossil fuels, when fossil fuels are, of course, part of the reason that we have this change to the Arctic in the first place. Yeah, it sounds like a huge, huge change, but it also sounds like it has some kind of cultural roots. And in your article, you discuss kind of the cultural importance of the Arctic to Russia in particular. Mm-hmm. Um, and you highlight this brand of kind of rugged Arctic explorer, which is just fascinating. Can you expand on this point a little bit? Sure. One of the things that I found really interesting is that the uh, there's all sorts of changes that are happening now that uh, in the Arctic that have drawn interest in on the part of the, uh, the what they call the A5, the Arctic Five, 
but certain countries, particularly Russia and particularly Canada, have been most aggressive in terms of uh, in terms of responding to uh, these changes in the Arctic uh, and in trying to stake a claim in those areas. Uh, Norway and Denmark are also doing their best, uh, but much less aggressively than, than Russia and Canada. And the U.S. has been very, very slow and to a certain degree and, uh, until really just the last couple of years, uh, not particularly interested in what was going on. Um, and so my question to myself was, well, why? Why is it that Canada and Russia in particular have been so, you know, have jumped out in front, have, have tried to, uh, to you know, really stake a claim early and this sort of thing? And I think part of the answer to this uh, comes from the fact that uh, uh, in both of those cases, these are countries that have a very long uh, history of a relationship to the Arctic, uh, where they see themselves uh, when, you know, when they think of, you know, who you are as a Russian, who you are as a Canadian. Well, a big part of that. Uh, is you know people who live in uh, in big cold countries that are connected to the Arctic, uh, and so that there's a there's a long-standing connection uh, on the part of those countries to uh, to the Arctic and uh, and control of the Arctic and one's presence in the Arctic is a big part of how they they think of themselves uh, and their countries. And in the Russian case, you know, so you know, back even in the 18th century, there was extensive scientific research that was being carried out uh, on the part of Russians to, to try to map the shorelines and figure out, you know, could you sail a boat through the Arctic Ocean? And at that point, you couldn't. Uh, the ice was there throughout the entire year, and there was no hope of ever getting a boat through. So the Russians have been, have been thinking about the Arctic. They've been interested in it. They've been studying it for, for several hundred years. But Russia's kind of... Uh, relationship to the Arctic, their kind of romance or love of the Arctic, really took off uh, in the early part of the 20th century, uh, you know, particularly in the 1920s and 1930s when it was the era of the Soviet Union. Uh, this was a time where, where Russian uh, uh, polar explorers were among the leaders uh, across the planet, and their exploits were, uh, were just publicized all over the place uh, in the Soviet Union as, as an example of just how great the Soviet Union was and how great Soviet technology and so- Soviet science was. But at the same time, even, I mean, anywhere you went across the planet, the exploits of these uh, explorers uh, were, were also championed. The New York Times uh, repeatedly ran stories about the, the Soviet explorers. Uh, some of them met up with, uh, with U.S. President Roosevelt and this sort of thing. Uh, so that it was, uh, it, was, it was a big deal internationally. And, uh, and these explorers were, were amazing people. They did a whole series of kind of firsts. They were the, uh, uh, the first to, to, to fly a plane and land it on, uh, on the North Pole. Uh, they were the first to do kind of transpolar flights where they flew uh, from the Soviet Union through across into uh, into North America, you know, thousands of miles over the Arctic. And they also were the first to set up these amazing research stations where they would they would fly into the North Pole. They would set up a, a kind of research station. You know, the, the ice in the Arctic isn't permanent. It, it moves. It flows during the year. So they would start there at the North Pole. And then over the course of months, the ice would take them out. Uh, into the Atlantic Ocean, uh, you know, and, and one could see there's, there's an extraordinary heroism there. I mean, here you have these people who are being you know, basically stranded out on the ice, who are going to then do all this this sort of amazing scientific study. Uh, at the same time, the dangers were enormously real. Right. Uh, on, on several occasions, these drift stations uh, uh, collapsed because the ice buckled, uh, and you have these sort of mountains of ice that would shear up. Just I mean, too unpredictable, right? So unpredictable in that regard, and uh, and and incredibly dangerous. And so suddenly, one night you're sleeping, and the next thing you know, you've got this big thing of ice that run up to your tent uh, and you're running for your life. But even that, I mean, the, the Soviet press made a big deal even in those moments where there was great disaster because often there was great disaster brought some kind of heroic uh, you know, saving of people. Right, okay. Uh, and so uh, you know, there's one great example of the uh, Chelyuskin mission where they were trying to prove that you could, in fact, in a single season, take a boat all the way through the the, uh, the northern sea route. But it got stuck in the ice. So it's caught in the ice. It's got a hundred and some people on board. 
and they the, the crew decides they're just going to stick it out. They're going to they're going to live on the boat and hope that the ice eventually drifts out to the Pacific. In this case, where they'll uh, they'll be safe. But at a certain point, uh, the ice starts to crush the hull, uh, and within a couple of hours, the boat sinks. They practiced and practiced and practiced uh, evacuation. So basically all but one of them were able to get out. But now they're stuck on the ice in the middle of the Arctic Ocean. Right. Uh, and uh, and the, Soviets, the, the Soviet government then decides to try a uh, what had never been attempted before was to fly planes up to, uh, to bring these people out. And, and land on the ice. And to land right on the ice. And so the, the people on the ground, uh, you know, I shouldn't say on the ground, on the ice, you know, the people on the ice surface were, uh, you know, they made a kind of makeshift uh, landing strip. And then these, these daredevil pirates came in and landed the planes. And they got everybody out uh, and it was a huge I mean it was internationally every, I mean everybody was just in awe that uh, I mean across the planet people were in awe that the, the, the Soviets being able to pull this off and uh, like I said I mean there was a big tour of the the the, uh, the leaders of this expedition did a big tour of the United States uh, where they were interviewed and kind of feted and uh, uh, and they got to meet the president all that good stuff and then in the next kind of May Day parade they had their pictures hung up right next to Marx and, uh, and Engels and, and Lenin and Stalin and all this sort of good stuff and so uh, it was a really big deal and I think that going back to your kind of your, your question about the kind of cultural roots I mean I think for Russians this this love and romance of the Arctic and the sort of sense that the Arctic is is just a big part of who they are that what it means to be Russian is to be in some ways in control or part of the Arctic that develops in part because of these incredibly heroic exploits uh, of, uh, of these explorers and scientists and, and a long tradition of these explorers and scientists uh, helps explain why the Russians have been so uh, at the forefront of, uh, of today's events in, in this kind of race to the Arctic. They clearly look back to those days. So uh, Artur Chiningarov, who's a very, today uh, is a very famous scientist and member of parliament in Russia and was in the mere submersible who went down to the Arctic floor to plant the flag. Uh, you know, he sees himself in the same vein as these earlier polar explorers, you know, somebody who's really out there uh, doing amazing histor- uh, historic and heroic things for the greater good of Russia. And that kind of that sense of heroism and romance and connection to the Arctic, I think, is really plays a really uh, big role in, uh, in Russia and I think explains why, you know, as soon as they started to realize that the climate was changing up there, the Russians were, were, were quick to kind of start to make their move. And the Canadians, I think, have a similar story, but their sense of connection to, that, uh, to the Arctic is also uh, has its long roots and a strong cultural connection, which also explains why Canada has been so proactive uh, in, uh, you know, in these struggles. That's really fascinating. Now I'm going to switch gears just a little bit and kind of throw a couple of stats at you. Um, the Yale Project on Climate Change reported some confusing poll data in September of 2012. So first, some 70% of Americans now believe that global warming is a reality, but also they found that only 54% of Americans believe that global warming is mostly caused by humans. And I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on why there's that discrepancy between those two numbers. Numbers. Well, that's a great question. I mean, I, I, I have some ideas. I'm not sure I have the final answers on that. I mean, I think in part, it, it reflects the fact that we don't like to admit that, we, that, that we're, we're part of this kind of issue, that, that humans could have such a substantial you know, impact on, uh, on the climate around us. In particular, I think we're reluctant to admit it because for the most part, what it would mean is that we may have to give up some of the great uh, goodies that we have you know, at the moment, I mean, I think people don't want to give up their second freezer in the basement uh, and right, the air conditioning right. blasting at 56 degrees in the summer and mm-hmm. uh, and all this sort of thing. And so uh, as much as th- people may be able to look around them and see, OK, yeah, climate change appears, you know, the evidence we have in front of us seems to indicate that there's there, there that are changes something's in the climate. happening. Exactly. Right. Something's happening. But at the same time, we may not want to admit uh, responsibility. 
in part because of what it might mean for our lifestyles. But I also think there's, a, there's another aspect to it is that one of the things that's very clear is that the, the more we study climate science from all of its different angles, the more we realize just how complicated this question is and how you know, the mechanisms of how our climate functions is, uh, you know, has so many different factors that go in to create any one single event. I mean, you know, air temperature or water temperature, or water current or wind currents or all these sorts of different sorts of things. And so... Partly, I think you see that discrepancy in the numbers because legitimately there's some confusion. I mean, in the sense that I think top scientists are still trying to figure out exactly how all of these processes work and how you know, the impact of humans might function within these kinds of larger systems. Because what's certainly clear is that the climate changes whether we're here or not. Uh, that it's not as if there there existed some kind of a static planet. Right, uh, And then, you know, humans came along and messed it up. But that the planet has transformed in in major ways over time. Uh, you know, when we live in a period, I mean, the last sort of 12, uh, you know, 10 to 12,000 years, give or take, uh, has been a period of, uh, of relative uh, stability uh, in terms of climate, which is partly explains you know, the ability of humans to, to thrive and survive because, you know, the, the Earth's climate at the moment is right in a range that really works well for us. Uh, but before that, uh, there's lots of moments where the planet was deeply inhospitable to, uh, to the kinds of needs that humans, uh, that humans had. And so I think that, uh, you know, to be fair, I think that's partly why we see that discrepancy is that, okay, uh, yes, humans may have some impact on all of this, but we're just really starting to come to terms with the way in which, you know, our changes uh, are connecting in with the broader patterns of, uh, of, of, of climate on the planet. Great. Um, And your article takes a very kind of international approach to the issue of climate change. And I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on how the attitudes of Americans towards climate change kind of stack up when compared to the rest of the world. Statistically, I mean, I, I can only go on sort of the uh, the studies that people have done. I mean, what, what seems clear is that the, the, the U.S. has a much larger number of, of what we might call sort of climate change deniers, you know, people who don't, in fact, believe that any kind of climate change is happening. And if it was happening, then certainly the humans are not, you know, not involved in that process. And and if you compare, I mean, certainly if you compare the United States with uh, with Canada or with uh, with most countries in Europe, which are countries that, that firmly believe that, in fact, there is substantial climate change going on, that humans do play a role and that we we as a species, you know, uh, both for our own survival in the long term, but also for the, the more general survival of, uh, of other species and of the planet, need to take some action now if we're going to. And we have to start thinking uh, not just about ourselves uh, and not just about the next generation, but, you know, seven, ten generations down the road for whatever actions uh, we take. And the U.S., I think, is a little bit more, is a little bit slower to try to accept that. Partly, I think, uh, because, well, we're, we're real beneficiaries of the model of, uh, of economic production uh, and kind of consumer society and all that sort of thing that, uh, uh, that we have at the moment. Uh, and so why would we want to change? Uh, right, and, right. Uh, but I also think that there, there are other places around the world. I mean, the Russians, too, have a peculiar relationship with, with climate change. There are a lot of climate change deniers in, uh, in, in Russia as well. I mean, even with the Arctic, there are many people who say, well, you know, if you look at the 1930s, there was a time where, where sea ice started to, uh, to recede. So uh, are we really in, in, in some kind of uh, long-term trajectory at this time, or are we just in one of these kinds of ebbs and flows, where, uh, which we've seen, uh, we've seen before? The U.S. is quite different in that way. We also, we're also different compared to uh, a lot of what we might call the sort of developing <coughs> countries, you know, China, India, you know, Brazil, these sorts of countries which are where their economies are really taking off at the moment. Uh, they're very well aware of, of climate change, but at the same time, they're also starting to see the benefits of, uh, of new types of kind of industrial and, and productive-based and consumption-based economies. Uh, and so then when international organizations come in to try to, to say, well, you can't, 
you shouldn't be polluting in this sort of way. We have to be careful of climate change. They say, well, you did it. Right, uh, right. And, uh, Those and NGOs often coming from Western Europe exactly, or the United States, right. Who are all in very good shape and all have their air conditioning on at 56 in the summer. Yes, and all exactly, that sort of good right. Safe. Yeah. Interesting. So I'd like to shift gears a little bit. Um, so your, your article, Russia and the Race for the Arctic, is something historians are not particularly accustomed to writing. Um, a digital media piece aimed at the broader audience. So what was the writing process for something like this? Well, let me just say sort of first of all that, uh, you know, for me, this kind of writing uh, where, you know, I'm trying to write for as broad an audience as I can uh, is something that I think is really important for for all historians uh, to do. It's part of the reason that that I helped to kind of start this magazine uh, was because I really felt that, uh, you know, academic historians uh, have an enormous amount of knowledge, an enormous amount of insight about what uh, has happened in the world, uh, you know, how we got to where we are today, ways of thinking about the world in which we live, uh, and yet they don't come out uh, into the media very often. I mean, if you look at the, the talking heads that are on most you know, t- you know, Sunday morning talk shows and this sort of thing, you know, they're not historians. They're, for right. the most part, you know, if they're poli sci or they're journalists or this sort of thing. Uh, and so the kind of historical way of thinking and approaching topics doesn't make it out as much as I think it needs to into, uh, into the mainstream media. And so you know, for me, it's very important that these kinds of ideas and these ways of thinking, I mean, historians really do. I mean, I mean in part, they, they really help us to understand how is it that we got to today? What are all the choices that people have made to, bro- to bring us to where we are today? At the same time that historians, you know, under- because we explore the past, we have ways of kind of thinking about how people act and why they act and how and just understanding the structures of, uh, of human society and culture that I think really help to make sense of, uh, of today's, uh, today's world. And so, you know, this kind of writing strikes me as, you know, is something that I'm really passionate about and that I, you know, I'd like to see more of my colleagues do because of, uh, because of the kind of impact and just different ways of thinking that I think historical writing can bring out. You know, for me, I find this kind of writing, I mean, you asked the question about how did I go about writing this particular article. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, for me, this is, this is, it's sort of fun uh, okay. because Great. I really get to, I mean, and, and there's a great deal of excitement for me in writing this in the sense that I've got this contemporary question. Russians are dropping flags on the bottom of, of, uh, of, of the North Pole. Uh, people around the world are, are exploding in concern over this. The Arctic ice is disappearing. What does all this mean? Uh, what does all this mean? How, how, how did we get to this particular point? And why are people acting the way that they did? Uh, and uh, and this kind of article then allows me to stop and uh, and really kind of think about these big big historical processes. Uh, you know, the, w- w- what's Russia's relationship to the the Arctic culturally and this sort of thing. Uh, you know, what are the patterns of climate change that we see? What are the ways in which you know the the world, the globe through the UN has tried to to legislate the uh, you know who gets to use what in the in the oceans and this sort of thing. So these really big questions of human life. Uh, and then to read about them and to think about them and then to try to bring across, well, what are the patterns? What does really explain uh, these amazing events that we have going on and how can we make sense of them? And particularly for me, exciting is the fact that – so I, I read a great deal in the, in the contemporary press. I read a great deal in the history. Uh, and I see the ways in which, you know, you can read lots of great articles uh, in the mainstream media about this, this issue. Uh, but they miss. They miss the big, the big point uh, about Russia's long-term relationship to the Arctic. The, you know, they, they look at the ice. They look at the oil. Uh, they look at the law of the sea. But they don't think about the ways in which uh, the Russians, Canadians, others are making decisions about how they're going to respond to disappearing ice or the discovery of oil based upon you know, who they think they are and their relationship to this place and that sort of thing. It's partly why the U.S. is not interested because the United States, for the most part, doesn't think of itself as an Arctic country. You, you walk around uh, the United States, you ask people, well, you know, 
are we part of the Arctic? Well, I think a lot of people forget that we even have Alaska, and, right, and right. it's certainly not unless, a big part unless you're going to go to on a cruise or something, right? Exactly, go right. see the lovely mountains and yes. uh, and all that sort of good stuff. But they don't think that that's that's not who we are as Americans. I think for Canadians and Russians, that's a big part of who they are. They really see themselves okay. as northern kind of Arctic people. Uh, I don't think that's and so. You know, the lack of U.S. interest, I think, is explained in part by this uh, and then the uh, the tremendous Russian and also Canadian interest because the Canadians are up there, too. They're developing a new uh, naval base uh, up in the Arctic. The uh, Canadian prime minister makes basically annual trips now in the summer uh, up to the Arctic as part of part of a diplomatic effort to kind of show, you know, we're here right, uh, and we care. Right. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm the leader of this country and I'm here every summer to show that this is our territory and we're interested in this territory and everybody else should take notice uh, and, uh, and this sort of thing. So these two countries that have had this long history and this deep connection to this place uh, are reacting very differently uh, and, and much more forward and, and some would say much more aggressive in terms of how they're, uh, they're approaching the Arctic regions. So um, in the terms of kind of your presentation and writing here and for Fort Origins, uh, you know, the, a magazine that seeks to connect both the current events to the historical mm-hmm. kind of longer historical perspective. Um, in terms of your writing, so what can historians maybe do better or do more to affect that kind of broader debate that you brought up? Well, I think partly, I mean, I think there's several ways that they can do it. I think uh, historians really need to get, uh, to start writing a great deal more for, uh, writing a great deal more in the in the mainstream media, uh, whether it's, uh, you know, through uh, through pieces in, uh, in magazines and newspapers, whether it's through blogs, whether it's through, I don't know what, but I think that there's, uh, you know, we as a historical profession need to value a great deal more uh, that kind of work where we're bringing our, our knowledge and our insight and our way of understanding events and our sense of, you know, how it is we got to today, you know, out into a larger audience. Yeah, it tends to be the case that uh, that a lot, you know, f- on a professional level, uh, many historians don't value that kind of work uh, in the way they might value some much more sort of specific research uh, book. Uh, but at the same time, I think we do ourselves a disservice by not stepping out there and uh, and really uh, bringing our understandings and insight, uh, you know, to to a wider audience. And I think we can, and and, and we have to do. Uh, I think we have to do more uh, about that. I also think that you know historians uh, we're people who are comfortable in the past in a lot of ways, uh, and perhaps a little bit less uh, uh, likely to kind of jump out and say, well, this is what we have today, or this is where we're going in the future, uh, and this sort of thing. And yet I think that we have to have a little bit more courage to make those, uh, you know, to, to, to enter into these kinds of uh, contemporary debates with the kind of knowledge that we have uh, about the past, and uh, to kind of change how we think and approach Oh, interesting. So do you find it do you find it kind of difficult to explain what you do as an academic to folks outside of academia or even outside of history department in some case? Has has origins helped you to do that? Um, yeah, I think it has. I mean, I, I think I've always been someone who's really you know, uh, tried as hard as I possibly can to think about ways to really connect what I do uh, to a larger audience. It's part of what you do when you teach. I mean, when, when you're reaching out to an audience of students. Uh, you know, sometimes history majors, sometimes not, but but people who may or may not be interested in the kinds of things that you know that that keep me up at night with thinking about historical questions. Uh, but how do you how, how do you how do you make the past come alive? How do you make the past feel important and relevant uh, to their lives? Uh, you know, how do you get them to understand the ways in which you know some decision by somebody you know 540 years ago uh, now, in fact, has a huge impact on, on the way you live, uh, you know, and the way you live your life and this sort of thing to understand the kind of interconnectedness. Of, uh, of human history. Uh, and so, you know, I, I've, I've always worked as hard as I can to, uh, to, to make those kinds of connections. And I think, 
partly because I want to make those connections. That's why we have origins. But I also think that now that I do it, uh, you know, it, it, it is. It's training my mind to think uh, about, okay, we have these events in the past. We have these events today. How do I put them together? How do I use the past to really help us explain uh, what's, uh, uh, what's happening today? But it is. I mean, sometimes it's harder to explain what we're up to. I mean, I think about uh, when I try to explain to my family uh, about my research. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, there is the eyes glazing over sometimes. But I right, think that's, right. Uh, but that's the nature for everybody who does kind of specialized research, whether it's in history or science or whatever. You know, I, I think about you know people doing uh, you know cancer research. Well, most of them are not actually discovering big cures for cancer. They're right. they're focused on one little gene or one little process or one little this, uh, and they spend you know good chunks of their lives focused in on one on that one thing. Uh, but that one thing can be crucial in coming up with the bigger picture. Uh, and that, I think, is, is one of the things that historians have to really work on is that we do that as well. We, we take one aspect of the past, often quite specific and quite narrow, to really make sense of it and understand it. Uh, but once we have that one piece in place, we put it together with the other pieces. Then we start to have this really big and interesting picture that answers a lot of really important questions about human history. And you know, what, what does it mean to be human? What, what's the nature of the human experience? And how have we lived our lives? And how can this knowledge really help us in our lives today and as we move forward, uh, make sense of ourselves and, and what, we've got in, you know, what we've got in front of us? You know, you only write for a magazine like Origins if you believe history matters. And so it's kind of a final concluding question. What makes history matter to you? Partly it matters for me because it's, uh, that's just how I see the world. I mean, partly I became a historian because I was trying to make sense of the world that I lived in. And uh, almost, I mean, I'm not sure where it came from. Does it come from my parents? Does it come from my school? I don't know. But from a very young age, whenever I tried to make sense of, okay, I see this event happen today. Uh, where does it come from? It's partly mm-hmm. how I got interested in Russia in the first place. I'm, I, I was living uh, a, a, at the time of, uh, of, uh, of the great uh, kind of Glasnost and Perestroika uh, in Russia with Gorbachev and this sort okay. of thing. Uh, and I'm looking at it around me and I'm thinking, well, where does this come from? How, how, how do we have this today? How do I make sense of the sudden change uh, in, uh, in Soviet politics? Uh, and I found that for the most part, uh, the people who are trying to explain it were having a really hard time making sense of it. But the more I went back into the past, the more I started to see, uh, you know, how we got to where we are today uh, and, uh, uh, and w- what had led to it. And, and then to be able to compare moments in the past to what we had uh, in, in, at that time uh, really helped me to, to, to make sense of that point. And so I think partly for me, it's just it's part of who I am. It's how I make sense of the universe is, is by uh, taking what I have today and then looking at how we, uh, how we got there. Nick, thank you for joining us today on Writer's Talk History. Thank you so much, Patrick. It's been a pleasure. 